show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are we serving today? Hello. Have we Hi. all sorbed up from the pub quiz? Nope. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, whether you have had a chance to listen back to it yet, but while I was editing it, I... Um, <laughs> I was shocked and appalled at our own behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It's actually the first one where I'm a little bit too scared to listen to it because it was definitely yeah. the most drunk I've been doing this. And yeah, yeah. I don't think I need or want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will say, um, you know, you didn't cover yourself in glory. <laughs> it was entertaining. <laughs> I do remember... I, I remember at one point I started speaking and just sounds came out. <laughs> it was just a jumbled mess. <laughs> yeah, it's the most editing of any episode I've ever done, and you, but you really can't tell because it's like it's that much nonsense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I tried, I'm I, listeners. I tried so hard. Okay, enough about last time. What are we doing today? <laughs> yes. So, um, today I am drinking a glass of wine. What are you drinking? Mm. I'm drinking um, a liquid from a glass, from a wine glass, but it is not wine, it's gin and tonic. But more importantly, um, it was the, what I think is the nicest glass I have in my oh. home, which is a very bulbous, satisfying wine glass. I do like those glasses. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking wine from a, a non-stemmed wine glass, so it's got the bowl but not the stem, mm. which makes me feel quite posh. Because today if you we're gonna guest. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna talk about glass. <laughs> we are. We're gonna talk about glass, glasses, wine glasses, beer glasses, bottles, all those Wedding sorts of glass. things. I thought I would start off by giving you something to melt your mind, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the fact that glass is not solid. Go on. Just let that settle in. <laughs> so when <laughs> that was it, that was the episode. Thanks for joining us. Um, Bye. And so are glasses. And so our glasses are not solid. Uh, so when when glass is made, um, it's the material usually contains silica, and then it's quickly cooled from a liquid state. But it actually doesn't solidify when its temperature drops below um, its melting point. So at this stage, it's a supercooled liquid, and that's an intermediate state between liquid and glass. But then it becomes an amorphous solid. So the material is cooled further below that glass transition temperature. And past that point, the, um, the movement of the molecules, the material's atoms, are slowed to nearly a stop, and the material is now a glass. So the new structure is, it's not as organized as a crystal because it didn't actually freeze, but it is more organized than a liquid. So for practical purposes, obviously it contains our drink. It is like a solid, but it's a disorganized solid. So like liquids, 
these disorganized solids can actually flow, but they do it very, very slowly. Um, so over long periods of time, the molecules making up the glass shift themselves to settle into a more um, stable crystal-like formation. And the closer the glass is to its transition temperature, the more it shifts. And the further away from that changeover point, the slower its molecules move and the more solid it will seem. So some people have kind of heard this, um, you know, this idea that it's not quite solid, it's not quite a liquid. And they think that's when you, why when you look at old cathedral windows, they look a bit like they're melting. Um, but it's not. <laughs> it's not because it's a disorganized solid. That's just <laughs> the, the way they were made. They were made unevenly. And the window makers preferred to put the thicker sides at the bottom for more stability. So it kind of looks a little bit like they're, they're melting. A mathematical model shows that it would take longer than the universe has existed for room temperature cathedral glass to actually rearrange itself to appear melted. <laughs> so yes, it does technically flow but so slow that we would never be able to perceive it. I think sometimes I am a disorganised solid. <laughs> you definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> you are amorphous solid. <laughs> okay. That's all I've got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> history of glass. Shall I try and do this in under an hour? Um, do. <laughs> okay, so... Glass, uh, well, first of all, glass can be naturally occurring, you know, through volcanic activity, through lightning strikes, but the history of glass making dates back to at least 3,600 years ago in... A long time ago. <laughs> one, one of these days, you're just going to say Mesopotamia, <laughs> because Aww. it always is. <laughs> um, however, some, some writers do... Um, think that what they were doing was copying glass objects that they'd seen in Egypt. So we just say Egypt or Mesopotamia, somewhere around there. Uh, the earliest known glass objects uh, are about mid-2000 BCE. They were beads uh, and were probably actually initially um, accidental creations. So they would have been the byproducts of metalworking, which are called... Egypt. <laughs> Slags. Mesopotamia. Oh. <laughs> Slags. I thought you might get that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> metal metal byproduct of glassy yes. kind of beads were called slags. Team slag. Uh, for vessels, though, for actual glass drinking vessels, we're looking at late Bronze Age Egypt. So Egyptian glass was soda ash, which can be extracted from the ashes of plants mostly from the halophiles. Halophile means salt-loving, uh, so seashore plants like saltwort. And the glass vessels then were core-formed, so they're produced by winding like, um, like a rope of glass around a shaped core of sand and clay over a metal rod and then fusing it by reheating it several times. So that's how they would make the first glass vessels that at least we can find archaeologically. Uh, by the 15th century BCE, there was extensive glass production occurring in Western Asia, in Egypt, and in Crete. Although um, it was thought that they were all quite closely guarded secrets and reserved for large palace industries, and they would be exported elsewhere as cast ingots elsewhere. And actually that protection around your secrets of glass making does continue for a very long time, as we'll see. 
the first manual of glassmaking, the first written record of how glassmaking happened that we can find is 650 BCE. Uh, and that is written in cuneiform tablets discovered in the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who we did talk about in the Mesopotamian episode. So there we go. He's... His um, cuneiform tablets continue to be very sourceful use of history. Uh, in the 3rd to 1st centuries BCE, a lot of the techniques of glass um, production, a lot of new techniques were introduced. And they started making much larger pieces, notably tableware. Uh, some of the techniques that evolved around that time would be slumping. <laughs> Slump, I'm going to use some really nice evocative words uh, in this history. <laughs> slumping viscous glass over a mould to form a dish. So it was not fully molten, but it kind of like folds over. You can picture what I mean, I think. Mm-hmm. And then also the mille fiore, which means thousand flowers technique. Uh, where canes of multicoloured glass are sliced and then the slices arranged together and fused in a mould that creates it like a mosaic. I think it, they look like sweets, like a mosaic mm-hmm. of sweets. Yeah. Or, or, you know, when you cut rock, that kind of thing. Um, and then it was also at that time that colourless glass begins to uh, come about and it's very prized um, and it, people will start experimenting more with how to make colourless glass. Then during the 1st century BCE, glass blowing is discovered on the Syrian Judean coast. And that really revolutionises glass now because it means that glass is as inexpensive as pottery is. So the growth of glass products um, comes through the Roman Empire, through the Roman world. And with their technology as well, that ushers in our modern approach to glass from everything from windows to wine glasses. So that's really kind of like through ancient history to the beginnings of our modern approach. I'm going to skip forward a millennium for the sake of time. Otherwise, it'll all be about medieval stained glass. And I I don't think that's too relevant today. So we're going to go instead to Murano. Uh, Archaeology from Venice suggests that they had blast furnaces as early as the 8th century uh, CE. And Venice's reputation as this centre for glassmaking is born... um, when actually the the Venetian Republic um, is getting kind of really popular with with their glass exports and they're worried that the number of big furnaces in Venice is going to set fire to something and they're going to have a great big fire because it's mostly wooden buildings uh, there. So what they do is they order all the glassmakers to move their foundries to the little island of Murano, which is, um, you know, in Venice, but you have to go to by boat. They do that in 1291 by a decree so Murano's glassmakers were soon the island's most prominent citizens. They were very wealthy. Their children were allowed to marry the most wealthy citizens. They were very respected. They developed these new techniques that became the centre of this very lucrative uh, trade export for Venice. And what made the glass there different was that the local quartz pebbles were almost pure silica. And they were ground into a fine clear sand that was combined with soda ash which they got from the Levant, and Venice had a monopoly on the sole trade there. So important was this to kind of the the wealth and the prestige of Venice that the glassmakers were not allowed to leave. (laughs) They were were basically prisoners of uh, the Venetian Republic. Um, In the 15th century, they discovered clear glass, which allowed them to be the only producer of mirrors in the world. 
so other countries would send spies to Venice and to Murano to try and figure out the secret. And um, some some glassblowers did eventually kind of sneak out into other areas of Europe and form their own uh, their own furnaces and places. But they were really trying to protect that for a long time for obvious reasons. Everyone wanted a mirror. <laughs> Um, they did eventually face competition from England, France and Bohemia through the 17th and 18th centuries, which led to their decline. But it all really comes to an end when Napoleon conquered Venice in 1797 and he abolished all the guilds in Venice, which included the glassblowers. So that kind of put an end to their uh, their big reign. Uh, it, it does still exist, though. You can still go to Murano and see the glass blowing. I've been there. I bought some glass. It's a very, very cool place. Um, England, I will pick up on then. How did England become one of the players? Uh, so they had quite an important advance in glass manufacture, which was the technique of adding lead oxide to the molten glass. And that improved the appearance of, of the glass and made it easier to melt as well using sea coal as a furnace fuel. So that meant that you had a longer working period for the glass, which made it easier to manipulate. Uh, that was first introduced by a guy called George Ravenscroft in 1674. And he was the first to produce clear lead crystal glassware on this like big industrial scale. Um, and that meant that England could then start to overtake Venice as the centre of the glass industry in that in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, the, after his patent expires, there were 27 glass houses in England that were producing this flint glass and exporting it all over Europe. And in 1746, trying to take advantage of that, the government imposes this imposes this tax on it. And um, what you might expect is that what they would start to do is reduce the lead content of the glass but actually they get a bit more creative and the manufacturers create instead these smaller more decorated um, uh, delicate forms that would have hollow stems so they'd use less material but make it look fancier and those glasses that you can find today uh, are referred to as excise glasses so if you hear someone say oh that looks like an excise glass it's got a hollow stem and it's small and decorative um, the British glassmaking industry got to take off again in 1845 after the tax was repealed. And just a few short years after that, in 1851, it meant that all this glass that they were producing led to the building of the Crystal Palace, which was for the Great Exhibition built by Joseph Paxton. So that was a huge moment for, well, I mean, for innovation for Britain and for, for glassmaking as well. Um, I might... Pause there um, on on the history. I think I I've, I brought us up to more or less the modern age in the eighteen fifties. <laughs> Before I go on to anything specific about drinking glasses or bottles, uh, I'm going to drink some myself and hand over to you. <laughs> Enjoy. Funny enough that you touched upon a lot of the stuff that I am going to talk about, but thankfully I uh, I'm not going to repeat to myself too much. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I looked into the history of the wine glass. As I'm drinking wine today, I thought it would be in keeping. Um, so unsurprisingly, after hearing what you've had to say, <laughs> the modern day wine glass as we know it uh, emerged in around uh, 1400s in Venice. Um, as you also mentioned, people have used glass to drink wine from for a lot longer than that. But I'm just talking about the traditional kind of wine mm. glass that we know today, which is like the bowl, the stem and the base. 
Um, so yeah, Venice was at a time center of the glass blowing world. Uh, and it was those guys that learned how to purify the alkaline source to make Cristallo, um, which is a mm. very sought after clear glass. Um, so yeah, just going back to the shape of the bowl and the stem and the base of a wine glass, it's thought that that kind of shape and the stem in particular um, originates from the church. Um, so obviously it already existed on the metal cups and the chalices used for communion. Um, it's thought that the priest re preferred having a stem because it was easier for him to hold the stem up and show the communion, the glass of wine, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. of Christ. Um, so, yeah, it's thought to have originated from there. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, um, when the Venetians were kind of innovating and trying to make the glass clear and more sought after, they learned how to purify the alkaline source. But... Um, what they were actually doing, so they were they were removing elements that caused kind of colour and discrepancies in the glass. Uh, so they were removing things like lime as well as that, and lime is one of the ingredients that makes it quite durable. Uh, and so way back then, when they were still kind of in those early innovation days, the wine glasses used to get what they call glass disease, <laughs> where oh. um, they'd deteriorate very quickly quite quickly even in like normal air because a lot of the stabilizing raw materials in that glass just wasn't there anymore so um they'd start weeping or they'd start crizzling which is just basically having lots of fine little cracks so um yeah mm -hmm. it it took a while for glasses to be quite durable um but it was actually in england uh where we discovered the secret to stronger glass um, it was not until about the 1600s that we uh, England started making their own um, glass here. And there was a crucial moment. And again, it sounds like it was like a bit of an accident. Um, so the Royal Navy had asked glassmakers to stop cutting down oak trees to fuel their fires. Um, because obviously they were depleting really quickly and they needed the oak to build ships. Um, mm -hmm. So the glassmakers in England had to find a different source. Um, so they started using sea coal. And it turns out that the sea coal they started using burned to a lot higher temperature, which created a lot hotter furnaces and obviously strengthened the glass a lot more. Um, and with that came a big revelation. So obviously they were suddenly making stronger glass, nice, clear, strong glass. But also it had... Um, an effect which I think I don't want to go into too much because I think you might come onto it, but it was um, basically because there was stronger glass on offer and therefore they could make stronger bottles. That it there was innovation then with regards to bottling and and beer and wine and everything that came after that. Um, mm. But because I'm speaking about wine in particular, it was they claim this kind of happy accident through using sea coal and strengthening the glass that kind of made for uh, the birth of champagne appreciation over here because um, up until then it was a bit of a nightmare because there was lots of lovely French wine that was being imported over here and it, while it was fermented in the bottles they were just completely shattering because they didn't have this good strong glass. And it was when they discovered this kind of sea coal strengthened glass that they could start then. They were actually rebottling the, the imported wine. 
So they were importing the wine, rebottling it into stronger glass bottles. Um, and therefore, up until then, it was absolutely unheard of to have fizzy wine because it would have been a nightmare. <laughs> so <laughs> once they had this stronger glass for their wine glasses, they thought, hmm, we can start with fizzy alcohol and champagne. Thank goodness. Goodness of that. Um, you mentioned George Ravenscroft. Yes. Who was tasked with making the glass more clear and durable. Um, so yes, it was partly the sea coal and the hotter furnaces and the strengthening, but yes, he also added the lead oxide and um, flint. So it made it stronger, but um, it also gave it that ability to look like crystal. Um, so I went into a little bit of the science. I'm not big on the science, as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, when you add lead oxide to it, it affects how the light passes through. It causes the different colours uh, in light to travel at different speeds, also known as dispersion, which is why it looks all sparkly and lovely. So well done, George. Thank you for the pretty glass. <laughs> um, getting into the drinking of it, 18th century. Um, you were not in charge of your own wine glass when you were drinking wine in the 18th century. It was um, kept away from the drinker and brought to them by a footman or a valet who would also fill it to you. So you'd just be handed your glass, you'd take as much as you want, and then you'd hand it back. No worries. I, I approve of that. I do approve of that. <laughs> I wouldn't mind one of those. <laughs> I'll come not... up to you next week. I can do that if you want. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, yeah if you could, please. I feel like you wouldn't enjoy that quite as much because I can't imagine you giving the glass back. No, just fill it. Don't take it, just fill you, it. Oh. You tend to clutch onto yours for dear life, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't often put it down. God. <laughs> um, but yeah, this carried through the late, the late 1700s right into the 1800s. Uh, which is when the wine bottle then started to move on to the dinner table. And therefore, so did the glass and the societal acceptance of topping yourself up. One would argue, though, it. I think it's more dangerous having someone else topping you up because you don't really yeah. keep track of how much you're drinking. If you're topping mm -hmm. yourself up, you know, like, oh, I've had X amount of glasses. But I always find, like, in... Always when I was in like corporate events, you'd be chatting yeah. to someone and you wouldn't even notice they topped your glasses. And then you think, I don't know how, I have no idea how much I've drunk, but I'm really drunk. <laughs> With such douches, I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was like, yeah, when I'm at a networking event and someone's just, and you're sort of, you're talking to someone. So you're not even looking at the glass that they're filling up and you look at yeah. it and you're like, have I had any yet or not? <laughs> it's just constantly full. Yeah. London wankers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I've already mentioned um, the origin of the stems from the church, um, mm -hmm. but they um, they started to evolve as the kind of drinking culture evolved. So as I mentioned, the table, the glasses and the bottles are on the table now and people are top themselves up. So the aesthetics of it all was taken a lot more into consideration now that the glasses were on the dinner table. So they got a lot taller, more elegant, stems got longer. They started adding twists and bulges onto the stems called knops that were very decorative. Um, but also they served a practical purpose um, because people were starting to appreciate different types of wine, which of course had to be served at different temperatures. 
um, and by holding the stem it keeps um, the wine at the optimum temperature because you haven't got your hand holding the bowl and warming it up. Um, but it, before the wine glasses were these like beautiful elegant long stemmed things of beauty before we even had stems, before wine glasses are as we imagine them today, um, wine glasses were actually a lot more like shot. Um, imagine like a little Georgian glass from the early 1700s. Um, it would probably be about seven times smaller than a glass now. Like if you were to ask mm -hmm. for like a large wine, imagine seven times smaller than that. It's just a tiny little shot glass. Um, well, that's because of the aforementioned um, tax on glass. It wasn't until that tax was lifted that we started to see those really pretty, elegant glasses being made. Mm -hmm. um, and the shape of the different glasses, because you can obviously get the quite bulbous ones, you can get flutes, you can get all kinds of different um, sizes and shapes. Um, they also affect the taste. Um, and it's it's quite interesting, actually, that I, I did start reading into it. And again, I think that could probably be another podcast in its own. But um, the shape affects, more often than not, how much wine you drink, how it hits your mouth, and the smell as well. So if you think about different sized um, wine bowls, um, they can affect how much wine gets into your mouth, whether the wine rushes across your tongue or whether it disperses on the sides. Um, it can increase the surface area and the contact of the oxygen. Uh, and also for a really big, wide-brimmed bowl, you can get your nose right in there whilst you uh, drink. That's done on purpose as well, because obviously they want the aromas of the wine to be hitting your nose whilst you're still taking your sip and not lost. So a lot of thought is put into different wine glasses, and that's why you do have different shapes of different wines. I am... A glass snob, I will be honest. Even I can get my I can get my nose in this one. <laughs> I even like if it's the right if it's the right shape, it's fine. But I I am a bit of a snob with like I don't like a stem that's too short. Sometimes mm -hmm. in like hotels when they've obviously you're a size queen is what you're saying. Order. Yeah, I am. You're a size queen. Sometimes you just get those wine glasses and you just think, oh, you've gone to a wholesaler and just bought 500 of these. And they're not. Mm. Yeah. I like having a dainty, thin glass that's very tall stem. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Thanks. <Friend. laughs> I'm going to stop there before All right. everyone switches off. <laughs> <laughs> before you tell us any more about your personal preferences for size. Um... <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to talk then about the classic British pint glass. Oh, yes, please. Yes, have to. Glass drinking vessels were around in Britain from the 16th century, in addition to ceramics, but until the end of the Victorian era, pubgoers mostly were drinking from pewter tankards, which hid the bits of sediment that used to float around in the beer. And then two things happened. One was dingy pubs began to be better lit and also modern filtration methods meant that they started to produce a clearer drink. So as people were drinking, they became a little bit more enlightened to the possibilities of beer looking beautiful rather than like slurry. Um, <laughs> and so the modern beer glass was born. 
the usual sorts of glassware in Edwardian pubs was a handleless, sloping sided, thick walled, straight pint mug. If you can picture that. <laughs> um, and then around 1928, the 10 sided or fluted handled glass pint mug came in. Um, and this is the pint glass that you can see on the Beer is Best adverts that you, you may know from the 1930s. They were put out by the Brewer Society, but it's quite like a famous thing you might see in pubs sometimes. So that the one with the handle kind of still looks a bit like a tankard, but it's it's 10-sided rather than just round. And then the, I, I think might be my favourite to drink certain types of beer out of, the Dimpled Pint arrives in 1938 and eventually that drives out the, the fluted glass in the handle pint. Um, the 10 sided ones were still made into the 1960s but they, they sort of died out a bit. Uh, the arrival of the dimples glass coincides with preferences changing from um, dark dark beers or a pint mild as they would call it over to bitter which is more amber in colour. So the amber beer looks better in dimpled glasses because the light refracts better through it rather than the straight sided ones. So that's part of the reason why it becomes more popular at that time. Uh, in the late 1940s uh, there was a problem with these straight glasses because they tended to chip or nick where the um, rims were rubbing uh, against each other during washing and storage. Don't see what's so funny about that. Um, so in order to reduce the uh, rubbing of the rims, they invented the no-nick, um, coming from two separate words, you know, as in not, not nick, not nick the glasses, but it was spelled N-O-N-I-K. So that's the no-nick glass. And that's the very familiar one to us that has the um strengthened bulge um about uh, an inch or so half halfway down from the rim and that meant the glasses could rub together on the strengthened bulge rather than where it's likely to chip so uh that stopped all the nicking stop <laughs> shan't um a variation on that one on the no nick is the wasted thin walled pint glass where the rim is pulled in slightly to avoid the nicks. And that's the one that was taken up most enthusiastically by the stout brewers. So it's the classic Guinness pint shape that just comes in slightly at the top. Uh, but that had the same effect to reduce the, the nicks. And that became popular in the 1970s. But I mean, that's more or less it for Britain compared to other beer countries like, you know, Belgium and Germany. It might be surprising how few variations we actually have traditionally, but I think the main factor in that is that British drinkers very much like to be served a full pint. <laughs> this, yeah. I mean, we know this, we worked in bars. Way betide <laughs> you if you've been slightly below that, that pint mark. Um, and it's just easier for customers to be able to figure out whether they've got that full pint by having kind of quite no-frills glasses. So that's the theory why we didn't go down a fancier route with our beer. The exception to that would probably be the Yard of Ale, uh, but we covered that uh, on a previous episode. So if you want to hear stories about the Yard of Ale, and I do recommend it because it was full of lots of silly world records, uh, <laughs> go and listen to the Measures episode. Um, I thought I'd look as well then at what was going on with the fancier glasses in Belgium and Germany. So Belgium has lots of unique glasses, but 
here's sort of the, the three most popular. The first one is the flute glass, so very similar to a champagne flute. And that is the preferred glass for when you're having a Belgian lambic or fruit beer. So like a creek or a framboise. Just saying that makes me wish I had one. Um, <laughs> the, the narrow shape on that helps to maintain and also display the carbonation and colour uh, while still providing that, that aromatic front. And then they have goblets or chalices. Uh, and they are large stemmed bowl shaped glasses, a bit like wine glasses. And that's for serving Belgian ales, German box, and other uh, big sipping beers. So the distinction they have between a goblet and a chalice is typically to do with the thickness. So goblets tend to be thick while the chalice is thin-walled. And some chalices also have um, etched on the bottom of the glass to encourage a stream of bubbles to maintain that nice head. And then the tulip glass. The tulip glass is is shaped similarly to a brandy snifter. So the body is bulbous. Uh, but then the top flares out to form a, a lip that helps kind of retain more of the head. And they use that one generally for Scottish ales, for um, Imperial IPAs, for barley wines, uh, things like that. Some pint glasses that do taper outwards towards the top are also called tulip glasses, uh, despite having less curvature, so it's mostly to do with the lip. German glasses. So I'm going to start with the term Stein, or Stein, mm. um, which means stone in, in German. Uh, for over a century, it's been an English expression for a traditional German beer mug made out of stoneware, although this term alone isn't actually used in Germany anymore. So it may have, uh, the, the mug might ha um, have an uncovered mouth or a hinged pewter lid with a thumb lever, and the capacity can be anywhere from 0.4 litres to a full litre. So like decorative tankards, steins are often decorated in um, cultural nostalgia of Bavaria and Germany. And the, the theory with the lid, the sort of the, the piece of lid, is that it excludes flies from your beer, but may originally have come from plague times, from the Black Plague, where it was meant to... Um, intended for those who were diseased but given that we didn't really have kind of much of a notion of things like infection i don't really know how that applies <laughs> anyway um what you will actually hear more commonly instead of stein in germany is the mass and mass is one liter quantity of beer most commonly used in bavaria and austria as well a mass is served in a mass krug um which is sometimes just referred to as mass <laughs> which is confusing um mass as a feminine noun demass is uh is the the measure but that's also commonly confused with the neuter noun das mass which actually means measure <laughs> right so das mass means measure demass means a liter but it could also mean the mug that the liter of beer comes in <laughs> sure <laughs> Yay! Um, and so because mass is a unit of measure, it can also come in the glass of a mass krug, but it could also come in a stoneware mug. Uh, there's an a delightful, really delightful um, endurance sport called mass krug stemmen, um, which involves holding a filled, which would be then 2.4 kilogram 
uh, mass at arm's length. And you have to see how long you can do it for. The, um, the world record is 45 minutes and two seconds. Fancy having a go? No, I really don't. No, me neither. I think it's one of those things that sounds easy, but it's it's really not. Because I remember no. when, um, back in the day, when I was at a scamp, um, I used to be in the army cadets, and they used to make us hold two rifles out at arm's length, and it was hard. Like, a couple of minutes and you were done. Yeah. So, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> I No, I absolutely would not like to. I think this, this next one, and again, look it up on YouTube, um... This is the record for the most... It says Beersteins, so I'm presuming it's a mass. Actually, it is a mass because I looked at the video. Um, carried <laughs> over 40 metres. It says without spilling. Now, I watched and there was a bit of spilling, but it didn't drop anything. Uh, his name's Oliver Strumpfel. He did it in 2014. What do you think um, the record is for the number of 2.4 kilogram masses you can hold... And go 40 metres without kind of massively spinning or dropping them. So is he allowed to use more than just his hands? Like, can he load them on his body or is he just holding them? <laughs> like a backpack. No, like it's just... It's, it's, it's just It's just hands and arms, yeah. Oh, God. Um, I'm going to say 80 Okay, well, you wildly overestimated that. It was it was 25 steins. Oh, in my head yeah. I was thinking he could do like 20 in each hand if he stacked them and then just... That would be so out. incredibly heavy. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, I always think it's impressive when you go, it's like an Oktoberfest event and they come out carrying, you know, like eight of them, but to have 25 on your arms... And then go. Anyway, look that up. It's yeah. good fun. Um, Pilsner glasses. They are generally smaller than the pint glass. They are tall, slender, and tapered. Uh, the slender glass is intended to really kind of reveal the, the colour and the carbonation of the beer, like you would get with a smaller fluted one. And then the broad top helps to maintain that beer head. True Pilsner glasses have an even taper, so there's no curvature on a proper Pilsner glass. Whereas a Wiesen glass used to serve wheat beer is narrow at the bottom and then it curves up to a wider top with, um, and that's so that the, the width of it can release the aromas of the wheat beer and also provide more room for the big, thick, fluffy head that you get with a wheat beer. It tends to be taller than the pint glass, generally holding about half a litre and then lots of room for the, for the foam. Uh, wheat beers do foam a lot. You may have noticed if you poured one yourself, um, especially if you pour <laughs> it quickly. So if you get it in a pub um, and the bottle is, you're getting it in a bottle and that's given to you to pour yourself, um, what you should look out for is that the glass will have been wet for you or have a bit of water in the bottom that you can swirl around uh, the entire glass because that keeps it from foaming excessively. Top tip. Um, Stangen. That is the high, narrow, cylindrical um, Stanger, which it means stick or rod in German. That's traditionally used for a Kolsch. And then a, a, a Becker, traditionally used for an Altbier, is similar, but it's shorter and fatter, um, which I think you can kind of 
you can kind of picture. We have those here now sometimes in, in places. Uh, mm -hmm. The Stange usually holds only about 100 or 200 mils. So it's for a much smaller serving of beer. And they are carried by slotting them into holes in a special uh, tray called a kranz, which means cr crown or wreath. Um, so that's where you would get those. And um, one more, I couldn't, um, I couldn't leave Germany without talking about the beer boot. <laughs> <laughs> the German beer boot. So how old do you think it is? Oh God. As a traditional chugging from the, chugging from the shoe. I'm going to say like 18th century. Okay. Well, as the stories go, these um, these modern beer boots are about a century old. Um, it's believed that a general somewhere promised his troops that he'd drink beer from his boot if they were successful in battle. And when they did win, the general had a glassmaker fashion a boot from glass to keep his promise without having to taste his own feet. Um, and, you know, avoid spilling the beer as well into his leather boots. And then since then, it said soldiers enjoy toasting their victories with a beer boot. Uh, and you see it happen at gatherings in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, and the beer boots will be passed around among the guests for festive drinking challenges. So those stories go back around a century. But boot and shoe-shaped drinking vessels have been found at archaeological sites around there, dating back to the late Bronze Age. Whoa. How crazy is that? In the Bronze Age, people it's... were chugging things from... From boot vessels. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> why? why? Why do why? we as a species want to do that? <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I enjoyed that fact. Um, that's me on um, on glasses for now. I thought I'd just stick around Europe. Um, I'd like to talk about champagne, please. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. Um, so, yeah, champagne glasses. Um, obviously going to be talking about champagne in the UK. Um, and in the early days of champagne being drunk here, um, they didn't really have a specific glass. Um, it was simply just seen as, oh, it's a carbonated alcoholic drink, so we'll just use the beer and cider glasses, I guess. <laughs> um, and I guess that's probably to do with, as I mentioned earlier, um, fizzy wine, fizzy imported alcohol was kind of unheard of until a decent glass was found to bottle them. Um, so I guess it wasn't really taken all that seriously and wasn't really understood. Um, so they just put it in beer and cider glasses. Um, this was in the 18th century. Um, so the beer and cider glasses back then were usually very short-stemmed glasses with a funnel, uh, a round funnel-shaped bowl. Um, but by early 1800s, they started to get a lot more decorative. Obviously, the glass, there was a lot of in innovation happening. The glass was stronger and clearer. And by this point, people were more used to having their own glasses at the tables and they just became more aesthetically pleasing. And so more often than not, you'd find these kind of funnel shaped um, bowls that were etched to kind of match the drink that you were drinking. So... For the beer ones, you'd find ones with barley etched in them. For the cider, they'd have apples. 
Um, it's very rare but not unheard of to find th those kind of glasses with um, uh, with vines and grapes on them and it's thought that they would have been for champagne. Um, yeah, as I said, champagne really wasn't properly understood for quite a, a long time and they were served in these glasses that were quite small. Um, these glasses weren't really designed for you to sit and enjoy a champagne like we do now. They were just kind of they weren't designed to savour the drink it was you'd pour it you'll gulp it down and then actually they'd pour any of the leftover kind of fizz or sediment into a big bowl on the table and then just go in for more so it was <laughs> not the champagne drinking as we imagine it today <laughs> wow <laughs> um and it wasn't until after 1830 that um you started to see proper champagne glasses on the on the scene in England and that was the um the kind of saucer glass or the coupe glass as we call mm. um so it's a shallow broad rimmed uh, stemmed glass you see it a lot now when people have um different cocktails like a french martini it's that saucer dish glass. yeah um it's thought that that shaped glass was favored for champagne because it allowed the mousse which was seen as vulgar back then to disperse they didn't want any of that they were like no nope, pour it and get rid of that <laughs> um one myth about champagne glasses there's a there's a big one i'm going to come to that at the end but one of the myths okay. about champagne glasses is that this um saucer shaped glass was simply superseded by the the champagne flute I guess when we think of a glass of champagne now, we do tend to think of a flute. But um, in truth, there's never really been one dominant type of champagne glass because it kind of arrived... Champagne arrived on the scene whilst glass innovation was still in its kind of infancy and these glasses kind of evolved with it. And because it arrived in England without its own kind of specific glass, people just used to enjoy drinking it in different shapes of vessels. People preferred drinking it sometimes in those kind of decorative vine etched glasses. Other people thought that the saucer glasses were more elegant looking and they drink them. Um, but it was actually in Russia that they started to see the first flute glasses being designed. Uh, Russia was the second biggest consumer of champagne at the time. And they were also very big on their uh, glass innovation and design. And they used to come up with all different kinds of really intricate, posh looking flute glasses, coloured glasses. They were often in like a royal blue colour. Um, and they were specifically designed to serve champagne to people in the imperial buildings around St. Petersburg. And so they were very high end. And so... That obviously spread into England as well, but it still wasn't really the dominant one of choice. People enjoyed them in um, sources as much as they did flutes. Um, and as this consumption spread across England, so did the kind of style and the designs. Uh, glass making was in demand and makers would travel the world looking for different designs and ways of doing it. Um, that's when people started looking at um, a rock crystal style. I think, did you mention the rock crystal earlier? Or am I imagining that? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, the rock, uh, rock crystal designs, they're also, I think they're making a bit of a comeback now. They're the ones where 
you have really deep engravings in the glasses so it almost looks like a crystal so they're mm. very thick glass so they're heavy glasses um and they'd have nice deep engraving to make it look like crystal um they became very popular um by 19 by the 1900s kind of edwardian period it was still quite delicate glasses and decoration and they all looked just very aesthetically pleasing um the decoration was either finely engraved imagery often classical references or cut in stylized shapes stars etc uh, the 1920s is probably seen as the era of that source of glass when you think of it it's it was favored by kind of film and kind of musicians Marilyn, Mor Marilyn Monroe Audrey Hepburn all those kind of people would be seen uh, not Audrey Hepburn um, Marilyn Monroe and I can't remember her name I saw a picture of her pouring some champagne into a source of glass when I was doing my Anyway, um, all the stars were drinking. <laughs> all of them. All the, yeah. all, all the stars were drinking from saucers, and so that's why it's seen as the era of the coupe glass. But it was still pretty much an era of experimentation. Um, there were lots of heavy sets of bohemian-style glasses appearing, and again, as I mentioned, they were heavy. Some of them were two fifty grams per glass. They were really heavy because they were wanted to get them as thick as possible to get this engraving and carving into them um but yeah chatting about the shape as i mentioned that saucer glass was favored to get rid of the mousse that they thought was um was vulgar but um as this innovation and experimentation happened um the flute started to get more popular because people thought it kept its face and the bubbles wouldn't disperse as much um but in honesty, a high quality champagne shouldn't lose its bubbles quickly anyway. So you can have it in a, a wider brimmed bowl or glass if you so wish. Um, champagne kind of connoisseurs tend to prefer um, a sorted dish bowl because you still have those aromas and different kind of flavors to enjoy with champagne and they say that it's sacrilege to serve it in a flute because you can't get your nose in there properly you can't swill it properly so if you want to impress somebody and you want to know like kind of mm -hmm. look like you know what you're doing don't ask for a flute <laughs> <laughs> um and the last thing on the shape i'm going to do a little bit of myth busting myth busting myth busting um mm -hmm. That kind of coupe shape, the, the saucer shape, there is yes. a myth that it's rumoured to be inspired by this, Marie Antoinette. Is this about, is this it's, about bubbies? It's about bubbies. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's thought that the glasses were modelled on a vibrette. Um No, it's it's not out of the question because there, there is a glass the Greeks used to drink from a cup um, called the Mastos cup which came complete with an articulated nipple. It was a proper boob. Um, and so it's just thought that Louis... So Louis the Sixteenth was um, her husband, Marie Antoinette's husband. It is thought that he commissioned a legendary French porcelain maker, Jean-Jacques Lingerie, or not Lingerie, Laringerie. <laughs> um, Slightly less it, sexy. Well, we were talking about boobs. That's why I got that. <laughs> It should be called lingerie. It would work. Mm -hmm. It's on brand. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, apparently Louis XVI commissioned him to make um, called a bowl sen, a breast bowl um, for Marie Antoinette. Um, but there is absolutely nothing out there to to prove this. The booby bowl has not been found. I've also read that there's so many articles on this online. Um, one of them claimed that Marie Antoinette had kind of claimed like to know nothing of this. Um, there's another story that he had uh, created a dairy for her at their home and had filled it with all kinds of porcelain and crockery and all kinds of stuff. And one that the pièce de résistance was this bowl that looked like her boob. Um, but she was like, no, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's definitely not true. Um, but doesn't mean to say the story uh, isn't important because a lot of people have since taken inspiration from that story. Um, Claudia Schiffer uh, offered up her boob um, for Karl Lagerfeld in 2008. He created a coupe glass for Dom Perignon, um, inspired by her. Mm. Um, and also Kate Moss offered her left breast uh, as the muse for a crystal glass for a restaurant in London, Restaurant 34. So should you want to sip champagne from the left breast of Kate Moss, get yourself to Restaurant 34. Who doesn't? Would um would you offer up Anne Boob for drinking purposes? I think mine would be like more of a yard of ale job. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a very long image. <laughs> I'm not the girl I used to be. I'm getting on. <laughs> you could have said a Stein, but no, yard of ale. <laughs> okay, great, thank you. Um, should, should we move on from that conversation? <laughs> Um, because I want to talk to you about stubbies. <laughs> oh, God. I do love a stubby uh, yeah. on all levels. Yeah. That's not, well, that's not what you said earlier when you were being all size queen about the stems, but okay, here we go. Bottles, glass bottles. So stubby or steiny, um, as they were known, is a short glass bottle used for, um, for beer that um, is shorter and flatter than standard bottles. So stubbies can be packed into smaller spaces for transporting. And it was introduced as a steiny in the 1930s by Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company. Um, and they got their name from the, the similar shape to a beer stein, which was what they were really emphasizing in their marketing. And some of the advantages, um, it's easier to handle, there's less breakage, it's lighter in weight, and it has a lower centre of gravity as well. Now, Schlitz may sound like we're in Germany, but actually it's a US company. So after the end of Prohibition in the US in 1933, a lot of breweries began marketing beer in steel cans. And the glass industry then responded by creating these short bottles with little necks, nicknamed stubbies or steinies. And um, the capacities would vary a little bit, but they mostly were the, the 12 ounces, which was what the soft drinks were, um, what they were used to from that. And they really kind of dominated into the 1950s. They were this good bottle equivalent to having a can. 
And then in the 50s, the neck started to become longer and longer as a preference. I read somewhere apparently that it was that women preferred the um, the longer necks. The men were fine with the stubbies, but the women insisted on something longer. And um, and that's where we arrive at what would now be kind of the familiar, you know, sort of 330 or so mil um, bottle, uh, beer bottle. Side note, how big do you think a Darwin stubby is? Um, four inches. Okay, so a Darwin stubby refers to a particularly large beer bottle size in Australia. Oh. <laughs> um, first introduced in 1958, it had a capacity of 2.27 litres. <laughs> Okay, that's not so, four inches. <laughs> no, you can still get a two-litre Darwin stubby available from NT Draft in the Northern Territory. I think it's an example of Australian irony. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's going straight on the spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Um, in Mexico, you might hear Caguama or Belena. They are the popular names for the um, 940 mil beer bottles, just under a litre beer bottle. Caguama um, refers to the loggerhead sea turtle. Um, so in Spanish, that's called Caguama and is used mostly in the central and eastern Mexico. And there are larger sizes as well, even that you can get a super Caguama. And then Belena is Spanish for whale, and that's what they use for the same thing, but mostly over in the northern Pacific coast. Belgium mostly uses the champagne-style bottles for their lambics. Um, as we found out in a previous episode, actually, they were probably reusing those champagne bottles that had been newly discovered and created to contain all the fizz uh, that was in there because there was a trade route from champagne through that region. So they were probably reusing those champagne bottles mostly, first of all, before they produced their own palambics. And on that note, Germany has approximately 99% of beer bottles that are reusable as deposit bottles. So at any given time, an estimated 2 billion beer bottles are in circulation in Germany. And on average, it sees 36 reuses each time, hmm. which is cool. Um, most beer producers in the Netherlands also um, sell their beers in a brown 300ml bottle, which carries a 10 cent deposit. And the breweries share a pool of reusable bottles of the same type. Its official name is Bruin Nederland Retour Central Brewerie Cantoufles. <laughs> Something well like done. that. Which means <laughs> Brown Dutch Return CBK Bottle. Um, CBK is the, um, the, the brewer. And, but it's more commonly known <laughs> as um, Pipia, Little Pipe. <laughs> little Pipe. So in both those places, uh, you can uh, recycle your bottles. Uh, in Britain, through the latter part of the 20th century, most British brewers also used a standard design of bottle, which was known as the London Brewer's Standard. That was a brown glass with a conical medium neck in the pint, um, with a rounded shoulder in the half pint and nip sizes. Um, nip is like a third of a pint and um, also a quart is two pints. Stop doing that visually at me, Marie Antoinette. Um, 
Uh, so the standardization, um, you know, that simplifies uh, the bottling, automation of bottling, makes it easier for customers to recycle bottles as they're interchangeable. They carried a deposit charge as well, which in the 1980s went up to seven pence for a pint and five pence for a half pint. Um, some brewers, however, started to use individual bottle designs. Um, so Sam Smith, as an example, they used um, an embossed clear bottle. And Scottish and Newcastle, which made Newcastle brown ale, they used a clear bottle with their designs, which survive today in the 500 mil sizes. Um, other brewers like Timothy Taylor had used their own embossed bottles. And the examples of using the standard version were getting rarer and rarer in the 1980s. So during the 80s, the industry turned away from this idea of having refillable bottles. And now UK beer bottles are all just kind of one trip, one use. There is um, compulsory high recycled contents of those bottles, which makes them, you know, extra dark. And also the lack of temper means that they chip more easily when they're being opened in Britain. So the conclusion of that is that marketing ruined sustainability. Just, just I'm putting not that out there. Start. I'm not starting. <laughs> it's because you've got no argument against that. <laughs> um, I mentioned that they use brown glass. Brown glass is better um, mm -hmm. a bit. So, because uh, what happens is your beer can become light struck or skunked skunky um, so if beer has been exposed to ultraviolet and visible light that causes the riboflavin to react and break down the isohumulones which are chemicals that contribute to the bitterness of beer they are derived from the hops but it it results in this sort of chain reaction um, which produces a very similar chemical um, to the odor in the muskborne substances that come from a skunk from their natural defences. So it's been identified as the primary odourant in cannabis as well that contributes to its skunk-like aroma, hence we call it skunk. So, skunk, bad. Brown glass does provide some protection from, from visible light and UV light, whereas clear glass and green glass do not. Some people think green glass does provide some protection. Green glass was actually introduced initially as a symbol of quality. It was meant to show that this beer is more quality than the clear glass. But um, it doesn't help with light conditions, so it's, it's sort of not really. Um, <laughs> there we go. I'm going to stop there for a bit. Back to you. Uh, would you like a world record? A quick, Always. Quick Always love yes. a world record. Um, I know the world record for the largest drinking glass pyramid. Ooh. Mm. Any guesses as to how many glasses? How many, how many glasses in total? Would, would you like to know what kind of glasses? Or do you want yeah, to go on straight then. in? They are the champagne teddy glasses. Oh, nice. Well, they seem like they'd be quite sturdy to stack to me because they are very mm. wide-rimmed. So I'm going to say a thousand. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is. I think you've gone the opposite way to my guess for the Stein Carrion Man. All right. Uh, it was actually 54,740. 
Blimey. That is a lot. You see, the, the thing is there, it's just because I know good practice. When someone says guess something, you have to guess kind of a bit lower <laughs> so that it's really impressive when the other person reveals the answer. You don't go oh, like eyeball it all the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to explain etiquette to you. But yes, do carry on. <laughs> yeah, 54,740 Um The pyramid reached a total of 27 foot... Um, it took five days to build, uh, and it was done in Dubai um, at the, uh, is it Palm Atlantis Hotel in Dubai? The big one? Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. One. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, and they did pour champagne in it as well, which is, in my oh, opinion, that, more impressive. That was going to be my follow-up question. I just wanted yeah. to make sure that happened. They did do that. I don't know if they served it, but they did it. Yeah. Okay. You'd well, hope so. Yeah. I can't let that much champagne go to waste. That'd be awful. <laughs> I'd like to think that they just put a big trough at the end, just in case <sighs> of spillage. Because if you're trying to pour champagne, enough champagne to fill that many glasses, you're going to have spillage. And... <laughs> it's the conclusion of this straw. episode that you're happy to drink out of a trough <laughs> after we've explored all these beautiful glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a trough full of unwanted champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can I ask you a question? Have you, um, yeah. ha- have you ever glassed anyone? <laughs> um, no, I haven't. Not even like okay. jokingly. Like, I not mean like jokingly. Not, not even for lols. <laughs> <laughs> I meant like, you know, like the fake glass that you get on stage. That's what I meant. Yeah. Not like lol, kiss and glass it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so... Obviously, if you're unfamiliar with the term glassing, <laughs> A, good for you, um, B, it means the use of glass bottles or pie glasses as a weapon. Um, pathologists have determined that beer bottles are strong enough to crack human skulls, which requires an impact energy of between 14 and 70 joules, depending on the location. Empty beer bottles shatter at 40 joules, while full bottles shatter at only 30 joules because of the pressure of the carbonated beer inside the bottle. Full bottles, it has been determined, inflict more damage in terms of concussion and skull fracture, but both full and empty bottles do the same amount of damage to the scalp. But the point is, don't go and glass anyone. Oh, okay. I was just making notes, sorry. Yeah, I know. I could see you writing something down and like, oh no, she's gotten the wrong idea from this information. <laughs> um, you mentioned stage, uh, like stage smashing, that's sugar glass mm-hmm. um, that gets used to, to simulate glass in, uh, in films and plays and, you know, WWE. <laughs> um, much less likely to cause injuries than real glass, uh, you will be pleased to know. And it's also inexpensive to produce breaks convincingly so it's a really good thing for stunts you make it by just dissolving sugar in water and then you heat it to what we would term in confectionery making a hard crack (laughs) um, stage which is approximately 150 degrees and then you add glucose or corn syrup and that's to prevent the sugar from recrystallizing Um, and then cream of tartar as well that also helps by turning the sugar into glucose and fructose Um, Sugar glass, though, is what is called hygroscopic. That means it attracts and retains water. So you have to use it very soon after you've prepared it, otherwise it does soften and lose its brittle quality. However, it is, unfortunately, um, rarely used for stunt work. 
these days because it is quite fragile and so it gets replaced usually with synthetic resins like um, picotex so it's more sort of like a breakable plasticky resiny thing now mm. uh, it does look very similar to regular glass um, but when it, it dries it still sort of caramelizes so it goes a bit wavy that's usually how you can tell sugar glass however is still used for crystal meth Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, Aaron Paul always used to sit uh, on his breaks of, uh, when he was on Breaking Bad. He used to eat the meth because <laughs> it's just sugar. <laughs> um, and that led me to think about glass eating. Oh, um, you may have seen magicians or um, freak shows. Do they still exist? <laughs> um, probably not. <laughs> um, people trying to try and, try and attempt glass eating. Um, generally, it's not real. They will either be using the sugar glass trick or ice is quite a popular version. If you make a like a sheet glass of ice and you break it with a hammer, it kind of sounds and looks like you're, you're eating yeah. a glass. So depending on like how close up it is or how it's filmed, it will usually not be real. But some people do really eat the glass. Um, <laughs> and the trick is just to make sure that you keep your tongue well out of it. You put the glass directly onto your molars and you crunch down on the big pieces because it's not going to cut anything then until it's basically, you know, like a fine grit and then you can just swallow it. Not saying that's without any risk or any harm. Yeah. You can still mess up your insides, but it's also not something that you're going to digest like it will go through you as long as you've powdered it enough. I found one really weird example of a, <laughs> of a man, I think he was in China, and he said he liked to eat glass as a just as a habit but um, that he didn't drink. <laughs> so he prefers to eat glass than drink alcohol. I'm like, well, that says it all. Uh... <laughs> you do you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, back to you. Uh, I found possibly one of my favourite world records in this. Uh, okay. okay, I'm ready. If it, it, it oh, can't, po- I mean, I already know it can't possibly be the one that was about the guy standing on his head eating sausages yeah. off someone I, else's I, head or whatever it was. I but did think I, I don't think it's quite on par with that. I think okay. you have found the best one, uh, but I think mine is my best one. Um, it's just very wholesome and cute. Oh, okay. Um, so this is a world record for the longest melody played by a model train. <gasps> oh. Yeah, it's cute, right? So um, this happened in a museum in Hamburg, the Miniature Wonderland Museum. Uh, During the pandemic, obviously, they found themselves with some extra time and uh, there was a long period of time where the museum was closed. Uh, And so to keep themselves busy, they gathered together all of the trains, all of the tracks, everything they had, and they set themselves this mission of just creating like a really long track. and they wanted it to play music as well. So they laid down track, they attached things to the trains, they'd sorted out the timing, they'd got glasses, different types of shapes and glasses uh, with different amounts of water in each one to get the tune. And they ended up with 51,000 foot of train track. It was 10 miles long. Yeah. Um, they'd used 2,840 glasses in total. Um, to just create this beautiful eight-minute-long um, track of music that the train plays. So the train just 
goes he, he plays a lot it's, it's mainly classical music uh lots of Be- beethoven mozart and it's just a really cute thing if you google it just google like miniature wonderland museum hamburg i'm sure you'll find it but it's just eight minutes of awesome joy <laughs> wow that is a very pleasing world record i hope i hope rod rod yeah. stewart's listening he will enjoy that um <laughs> i'm sure he's an avid listener uh, we can't exit this episode without talking about growlers. Again. <laughs> I feel like we have to. Uh, so in the in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, fresh beer was carried from the local pub to your home by means of a small galvanised pail. And the rumour is that when the beer sloshed around the pail, it created a rumbling sound as the carbon dioxide escaped through the lid, thus the term growler was coined. Mm. Possible etymology. Um, before World War Two, city kids used to bring the covered buckets of draft beer from a local bar or brewery to workers at lunchtime, um, or to their parents at dinner time, and that practice was called rushing the growler. <laughs> In the 50s and 60s, they would actually use waxed cardboard containers with lids um, that they take the, the beer home in. Um, so kind of like you'll get uh, Chinese soup containers or something from a takeaway. And in a lot of US states, it used to be, and actually still is, uh, illegal for liquor stores to be open on Sunday. So if you wanted beer on Sunday, you went to a bar and then brought some of uh, the containers of draft beer home with you. However, by the late 60s, many of the bars have switched to plastic and eventually found that they were allowed to sell packaged beer after hours. Um, So after that, a lot of the states allowed Sunday sales uh, at uh, liquor stores anyway. So the concept of the growler sort of died out in the the 60s. (laughs) Uh, But we do not fear because uh, the modern day growler came back uh, at the end of the 80s so in 1989 a guy called charlie otto and his father were discussing their dilemma at the otto brothers brewery they wanted to offer some beer to go for the local customers um, but they weren't yet in a position to bottle it because obviously that's expensive investment so the the father suggested that they use growlers which were what he remembered from kind of his younger days and they purchased a small silk screen machine and uh, then they were silk screening their logo onto half gallon glass bottles that resembled the moonshine jugs so it took a bit of inspiration from that as well and that really is kind of the the modern day growler reintroduction was uh, from these guys so they are generally made of glass and they have either a screw-on cap or a hinged porcelain gasket cap and that maintains the fr- the full freshness for a week or more, but actually a properly sealed crowner will hold the carbonation indefinitely um, and store beer like any other sanitised bottle. So the growler um, has been growing in popularity with the craft beer movement. I definitely see a few growlers on the streets here um, <laughs> going about from, from the shops. And um, you might be pleased to know that half a growler is a howler. Ah, for a growler myself. Yeah. I've got one more weird fact for you. Okay. And then we'll wrap up. Uh, This is about King Charles VI of France. I don't know if you've heard this, but he had a a delusion, uh, a glass delusion. 
So he was... Um, he wasn't the only one to, to experience this. There were actually quite a few glass men, as they had been known, uh, throughout Europe in the 15th uh, to 17th centuries. But they're tales of people who are afflicted, supposedly, with glass bones, glass heads, glass arms, glass hearts. <laughs> uh, and there's all these writing about them in medical literary texts. So King Charles was convinced that he was made of glass and he was going to break. Um, you might think, kind of like, oh is this an analogy for brittle bone syndrome or something? No, it wasn't. It was, it was a psychological condition that existed amongst quite a lot of people. So there were times when he, um, you know, would be like completely wrapped up and he wouldn't let people touch him. Uh, one unfortunate man was convinced his buttocks were made of glass and that <laughs> sitting down would smash it into shards. He was afraid to leave the house in case uh, a glazier tried to melt him down into a window pane. It's, it's, a, it's a problem we've all worried about. Yep. Another glass man uh, in the records travelled to Murano, the uh, the Italian island that I spoke of earlier, for its famous for its beautiful glass, hoping to fling himself into a kiln and be transformed into a goblet. Wow. There was... <laughs> yep. There's another case of a scholar who believed that the surface of the world was made of glass, beneath which lurked a tangle of serpents. And uh, he didn't leave his bed for fear that he would smash the glass and fall in among the snakes. Okay. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a really there's so many references to this. It's just a weird psychological thing that happened between 15th and 17th centuries, where people I think were maybe it's an expression of coming to terms with their own mortality, with the fragility of things. But they just started believing that they were made of glass and other things were made of glass and everything was going to break around them. But yeah, King Charles VI, the most famous person who supposedly thought he was made of glass and would shatter. I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, thought you'd enjoy that as a cheery closer. <laughs> Let's take our flesh bodies out of here. So our glasses have run dry because they're not solid. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> Cheers. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me. Oh, it doesn't even sound loud. No. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and stop. <laughs>